Here they come! Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host Eric Moore and today I'm flying solo to look at the oldest film we've covered and I'm guessing the oldest one we'll ever do, 1902's Le Voyage dans la Lune. When he was in his early 20s, Georges Méliès was an amateur magician, working for his father at the family shoe business in Paris and spending his spare time performing and watching magic acts. When he was 22, his father retired, sold his business and Georges used his share he was given to buy the Robert Houdin Theatre in Paris, which he had been visiting often to check out what the other magicians were doing. Keeping the theatre's staff of magicians, he soon reinvented it to suit his needs and introduced a form of stage magic that hadn't been seen before, using magic tricks in short sketches and scenes. The purchase of the theatre also included Robert Houdin's automats, mechanical scenes that played out little stories, and he had used these in the evening's entertainment. One of his best-known illusions was the recalcitrant decapitated man, in which a professor's head is cut off in the middle of a speech and continues talking until it is returned to his body. Many of his later films would feature such gags as this. The show usually ended with a magic lantern showing, so in a way Georges was showing the cinema to the public before there even was a cinema. On the 28th of December 1895, Georges attended a special private demonstration of the Lumiere Brothers' cinematograph given for owners of Parisian houses of spectacle. He asked the Lumieres if he could rent their device, but they said no. So he went to England and found Robert William Paul, who had taken a patent out on an invention of his called a theatograph. Taking it back to Paris, he could have shown other people's films, but Georges wanted to start showing his own. Problem. He had bought a projector, but not a camera but he had worked out a way to reverse the process and attach a lens on the front for filming. That was fine, but it was very heavy and very difficult to transport. It could only hold 20 metres of film, the focus was set, and it was hand-cranked. It was also nicknamed the coffee grinder or machine gun because it was so noisy. But as technology improved, he replaced it with better camera designs by Gaumont and Pathé. Right, the next bit. Is this fact or is this fiction? According to legend, one day he was filming at the Place d'Opera in Paris and the camera jammed. After he had fixed it and continued filming, he was amazed when he got back to the studio and viewed the film to see that the people and vehicles had moved. A carriage had turned into a hearse and men had turned into women. This fanciful tale often gives Georges credit for inventing the substitution splice, or the splice cut, 
where the camera is either stopped and something is swapped or it's done in an edit. But Thomas Edison had already come up with the trick and George was most probably aware of it. He's also been crafted with inventing many special effects techniques and methods, but that's rather open to debate. If not the first though, he was certainly among the first to use reverse filming, stop motion, the double exposure, fade-ins and outs, optical wipes, miniature work and matte paintings. He definitely was though artist, writer, magician, actor, set designer, producer, director, prop maker, miniature builder, makeup artist, costumer, cameraman, editor, composer, <laughs> I'm getting out of breath. In fact, pretty much every role needed to produce a film in those early days, he did. His films grew more and more elaborate and more and more fantastic, and in 1897, he achieved a world first. Because the weather was never reliable for most of the year in that part of France, he decided to, and was the first in the world, to build a studio built solely for cinema, having the walls and roof made almost entirely from glass. Long gone now, it was situated in the Montreuil region of Paris, which shortly after became the Hollywood of early French cinema. By the early 1900s, his techniques had advanced to allow for a wider field of vision. He would film scenes through a tank of water with fishing. He used miniatures quite a bit. He built and painted the sets himself. Many of his films had a morbid or macabre tone, and it could be said that he invented horror cinema. Despite his great success and the international acclaim, he was undercut by early cinema piracy, and by 1913 was bankrupt. In 1917, during the First World War, the French army turned his studio into a hospital for wounded soldiers and appropriated and melted down many of his prints to reclaim the silver from the film stock, and the celluloid was used to make shoe heels. In 1923, the Robert Houdin Theatre was torn down to widen the Boulevard Haussmann and Pathé took over his studio. In a rage, Georges went to the studio burned all the negatives of his films that were there, along with most of the sets and costumes. As a result, many of his films don't exist today. From 1925 to 1932, he and his wife ran a toy and sweet shop at the Montparnasse railway station in Paris. A reporter who was a cinema fan recognised him one day, and after that, fans of his work would come and see him. In 1929, a gala was put on in his honour and eight of his films were shown. It was a great success and he received a standing ovation. In 1931, he was made a Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur. His story was immortalised in the novel The Invention of Hugo Cabret in 2007, which was filmed with much love by Martin Scorsese in 2011, with George, played by Ben Kingsley. It's customary at this point to have an audio clip before we get into discussing the film. Um, that's kind of difficult here, so we'll go straight into it. We start with a whole bunch of astronomers and scholars arriving at a meeting, holding telescopes which magically transform into stalls for them to use. You've got a guy there by the name of Professor, Professor Dolmuddle, who says there's going to be a trip to the moon in a shell fired from a giant cannon, and after much OTT theatrical playing to the audience acting, five volunteer to go with him. They get changed, 
then and there, and exit stage left. We next see the shell being built. Though it's a set, at the top you can see the real glass roof of the Melier studio. We then go outside and we get a terrific model shot of a factory which is cast in the huge cannon. You don't see an awful lot of it, it's just an establishing shot of this factory, you've got some smoke going on, and then we're on to the next scene. This film doesn't hang about, it really doesn't. The big day has arrived, and the shell is there next to the cannon. The shell doesn't look to be a 3D object, it looks more like it's some sort of painting on a wooden panel with an operating door. The blokes get in, and the shell is pushed into the cannon by a procession of bathing beauties for some reason. We then have a lovely force perspective long shot of the cannon and again I don't think any of it is real I think it's a giant painting that's hanging there behind the actors. The bathing beauties are there again they're blowing their bugles as you do the fuse is lit and the cannon is fired and we zoom towards a cartoon moon which then dissolves into the actor wearing the moon makeup creepy, sinister, use what words you will. Uh, it's a disturbing image still today, let alone when I first saw it when I was a nipper. There's a splice cut to the shell landed in his eye. It's a bizarre image, uh, made even more so by the actor continually sticking his tongue out. Dissolve to the lunar surface and we see the shell land. Again, it's that painting on a flat piece of wood for a shell. The guys get out and the shell disappears for some reason. And next we get a really nice earth rise. I'm pretty certain this must be the first time this was ever done, ever thought of doing this. The blokes get sleepy, they go to sleep, a comet passes over, the stars come out, which is a series of stars hanging on the backdrop there with holes in it, with ladies poking their heads through so that they can watch the sleeping men. Um, and then we get various celestial bodies watching them too. Until it starts snowing, which wakes our heroes up, who take shelter inside the moon, and we have a really nice painting of the cave of the giant mushrooms there. And then the selenites appear. Really nice crabby designs. They're let down by their odd movements when you first see them. They, they're sort of sitting down, holding their legs up in the air and pulling themselves forward with their hands, much the same way our cat does when he's got an itchy bum. They vanish in a puff of smoke when hit, but the men are overpowered and taken to the Selenite King, who looks good sitting there on his throne, uh, but there's a splice cut, cut as one of the men comes forward, picks up the king and dashes him to the floor, who explodes. Now I've looked and looked and I can't see the splice moment. It's, it's really, really well done. They run outside, blowing up selenites as they go, and they find their shell on a precipice. They get in, save one, who has to go to the front and tug on a rope that's attached to it to try and pull the shell off the edge uh, so it will fall into flight. And it does, carrying a selenite, holding on to the rear. It falls straight down straight down <laughs> into the sea on earth. They sink to the bottom, bob back up, and are towed back to land by a steamship. All miniature work. There's a great procession as they're welcomed home, and the selenite appears clad in chains. And that's it. Film over. Phew, fast pace doesn't quite cover it, does it? 
we have 15 scenes to tell this story and the running time on my DVD is just over 13 minutes. 13 minutes, 15 scenes to tell that story. Yeah. Right, behind the scenes. As I say, 13 and a bit minutes long. It was at the time Georges' longest film. Although it's more like 17 minutes if it was shown at his preferred uh, running speed of 12 to 14 frames per second. But even at 17 minutes, the whole film has a shorter length than many of the sequences we cover on this show, doesn't it? Georges said that his influences were the Georges Verne novels From the Earth to the Moon and Around the Moon. But he's clearly riffing from H.G. Wells' first men on the moon with the selenites in it. But the biggest influence, though, must be an operetta which had the same name as this film. Um, not only does it have the same name, it too has got the travellers. It too has got telescopes that change into stalls. It also has the launching via a cannon. It has the moon travelling to the viewer and an earth rise scene and a lunar snowstorm. According to Georges, much of the high cost of a trip to the moon was due to the mechanically operated scenery and the selenite costumes in particular, which were made for the film using cardboard and canvas. Georges himself sculpted prototypes of the selenite's heads, feet and kneecap pieces in terracotta and then created plaster moulds for them. A specialist in mask making used these moulds to produce cardboard versions for the actors to wear. As with all films of the time, there's only one camera being used and it's in a fixed position, with the actors coming in and going out as if the camera is in the audience of a play. This is also early day cinema, where films were conceived of as a visual spectacle with not much thought given to storytelling or continuity, hence the ship landing twice, both in the man in the moon's eye and then we see it landing properly. As I say, the splice cut is used a lot here, it enables the telescopes to turn into stalls and the selenites to vanish in their puffs of smoke. The classic moment of the capsule approaching the man in the moon was achieved by having an actor wearing the moon, what we'd now call a prosthetic, and black velvet around his neck. He was sat in a wheeled chair and pulled towards the camera. The capsule in the eye is another splice cut. The selenites, with their odd movements, were portrayed by acrobats from the Folie Bergère. The capsule landing in the sea was done with multiple exposures, combining the capsule on a black background with live footage of the ocean. It's a cardboard cutout that rises to the surface, shot in an aquarium with tadpoles and air jets, and a painting of the undersea behind. Some prints of the film were hand-coloured. 200 people would paint directly onto the prints, each person assigned a colour in an assembly line. For the longest time, this was um, a pretty butchered and cut about film but in 2002 a print of the film was discovered in a barn in France not only was it the most complete cut of the film but it was also one of the hand coloured ones the film was restored and premiered at the Pordoin Silent Film Festival the following year I've looked into this and I don't know if this is actually the first film to show men going into space it's 1902 though so I've, I've got a feeling it could well be the film has quite rightly over the years been recognised for the classic that it is and groundbreaking uh, moment in film special effects. Georges Méliès' influence on future filmmakers also can't be understated and the film has been referenced and homaged throughout the years. The Smashing Pumpkins video for Tonight Tonight 
was highly inspired by this film, and as was the moon in The Mighty Boosh, which was Noel Fielding, his face covered in shaven foam, filmed in front of a green screen. That's all I have on behind the scenes, so I have to rate this thing now, and <laughs> how do you rate something as old as this? Well, taking into account that it's cinema in its infancy, that the film was set up and shot like a theatre performance, looking at the technical achievements and the milestones accomplished, along with the design and creative side of things, and the fact that the capsule landing in the moon's eye could quite possibly be the most iconic shot in cinema history, I can't help but give it a 10. So there you go. Right, right. That's it for this solo outing. I, ho I, ho I hope you enjoyed it. it. It's been a bit different to what we've been used to um, um, over the last year or so. But the reason for it is that I usually have a decent amount of episodes in the can. But right now I don't. So this has been done to give me a bit of a breathing space and get some others done while continuing to release an episode a week. Normal service will be resumed next time with there being two of us. So till next time, thank you and good night.